0: section five of the begum's fortune by jules verne translated by w g h kingston this LibriVox recording is in the public domain chapter five Stallstadt. we must take a leap through time and space five years have elapsed since the two heirs took possession of the begum's inheritance the scene lies in the united states to the south of Oregon, ten leagues from the shores of the Pacific. The district is mountainous, its northern limits as yet barely defined by the two neighboring powers. A merely superficial spectator might call it the American Switzerland, with its abrupt peaks rising above the clouds, its deep valleys dividing the heights, its aspect at once grand and wild." but unlike the european switzerland it is not given up to the peaceful industries of the shepherd the guide and the hotel-keeper it has alpine decorations only just a crust of rocks and earth and venerable pines spread over a mass of iron and coal should the traveller through these solitudes stay on his way to listen awhile to the voice of nature he would not as on the slopes of oberland hear the gentle murmurs of insect life or the herd-boy's call enhancing the silence of the mountain on his ear in this wild spot would fall the heavy sound of the steam-hammer and under his feet would echo the muffled explosions of powder he would feel as if the ground was as full of trap-doors as the stage of a theatre and that at any moment even the huge rocks might sink and disappear into unknown depths. Dreary roads, black with cinders and coke, wind round the sides of the mountain. Heaps of variegated scoria, which the scanty herbage fails to cover, glance and glare like the eyes of a basilisk. Here and there yawns the shaft of a deserted mine, a dark gulf, the mouth grown over with briars the air is heavy with smoke and hangs like a pall above the ground not a bird nor an insect is to be found and a butterfly has not been seen within the memory of man at the northern point where the mountain spurs slope into the plain lies between two ranges of bleak hills what up to eighteen seventy one was called the red plain because of the colour of the soil which is impregnated with oxide of iron but what is now called stallfeld or the field of steel just imagine a plateau of seventeen or eighteen square miles the soil sandy and strewn with pebbles and altogether as arid and desolate as the ancient bed of some inland sea. Nature has done nothing towards giving life and movement to the place, but man has brought a wonderful amount of energy and vigor to bear on it. In five years there sprang up, on this bare and rocky plain, eighteen villages, composed of small wooden houses all alike, brought ready-built from chicago and containing a large population of rough workmen in the midst of these villages at the very foot of the coal butts as the inexhaustible mountains of coal are called rises a dark mass huge and strange an agglomeration of regular buildings pierced with symmetrical windows covered with red roofs and surmounted by a forest of cylindrical chimneys, which continually vomit forth clouds of dense smoke, through the black curtain which veils the sky, dark red lightning-like flames, while a distant roaring is heard resembling that of thunder, or the beating of the surf on a rocky shore. This erection is Stolstadt, Steel Town, the german city and the personal property of professor schultz the ex-chemistry professor of gina who has become by means of the bigham's millions the greatest iron worker and especially the greatest cannon founder of the two hemispheres he casts guns of all shapes and of all calibers smooth and rifled bores for russia turkey romania japan for italy and for china but particularly for germany with the aid of his enormous capital this large establishment which is at the same time a regular town started up as at the wave of a conjurer's wand thirty thousand workmen germans for the most part crowded to it and settled themselves in the suburbs In a few months its products owing to their overwhelming superiority acquired universal celebrity professor schultz digs out iron and coal from his own mines which lie ready to his hand changes them into steel and again into cannon all on the spot what none of his competitors can do he manages in france ingots of steel are obtained eighty thousand pounds in weight in england a hundred ton gun has been cast at essen m Krupp has contrived to cast blocks of steel of ten hundred thousand pounds herr schultz does not stop at that he knows no limits order a cannon of him of whatever weight and power you like he'll turn you out that cannon as bright as a new halfpenny exactly at the time agreed on but he makes his customers pay for it it is as if the two hundred and fifty millions of eighteen seventy one had only given him an appetite for more in gun casting as in everything else the man who can do what others cannot is sure to be well off indeed schultz's cannon not only attained to an unprecedented size but although they may deteriorate slightly by use, they never burst. Stalstad steel seems to have special properties. There are many stories current of mysterious chemical mixtures, but one thing is certain that no one has discovered the invaluable secret. Another thing certain is that in Stolstadt that secret is guarded with the most jealous care in this remote corner of north america surrounded by deserts isolated from the world by a rampart of mountains five hundred miles from the nearest town or habitation of any sort we may search in vain for the smallest vestige of that liberty which is the foundation principle of the united states On arriving under the walls of Stahlstadt, it is useless to try and enter one of the massive gateways, which here and there break the line of moats and fortifications. The sternest of sentinels will repulse the traveler. He must go back to the suburbs. He cannot enter the city of steel unless he possesses the magic formula, the password, or at any rate, an order duly stamped signed and countersigned one november morning a young workman arrived at stallstadt who doubtlessly possessed such an order for after leaving his well-worn portmanteau at an inn he directed his steps to the gateway nearest the village he was a fine strongly-built young fellow dressed in a loose coat woolen shirt with no collar and trousers of ribbed velveteen tucked into big boots. He pulled his wide felt hat over his eyes, as if to conceal the coal dust with which his skin was begrimed, and walked forward with elastic step, whistling through his brown mustache. Arrived at the gateway, the young man, showing a printed paper to the officer of the gate, was immediately admitted. Your order is addressed to the foreman, Seligman, section K, road 9, workshop 743, said the sentinel. You must follow the roundway to your right till you come to the K boundary, and there show yourself to the porter. Do you know the rule? Expelled if you enter another section than your own, he added as the newcomer went away. The young workman followed the direction indicated to him along the roadway. On his right lay a moat, above which marched numerous sentinels on his left between the wide circular road and the massive buildings lay first a double line of railway and then a second wall similar to the outer one which entirely surrounded the steel city it was of so great an extent that the sections enclosed by the fortified walls like the spokes of a wheel were perfectly independent of each other although surrounded by the same wall and moat. The young workman soon reached the boundary K, placed at the side of the road before a lofty gateway, surmounted by the same ladder sculptured in the stone, and presented himself to the porter. This time, instead of having a soldier to deal with, he found himself before a pensioner with a wooden leg and medals on his breast the pensioner examined the paper stamped it again and said all right ninth road on the left the young man entered the second entrenched line and at last found himself in section k the road which debouched from the gate was the axle and at right angles on either side extended rows of uniform buildings the noise of machinery was almost deafening those gray buildings pierced with thousands of windows were like living monsters but the newcomer was apparently accustomed to such scenes for he bestowed not the slightest attention on the curious sight in five minutes he had found road nine workshop seven four three and having entered a little office full of portfolios and registers stood in the presence of the foreman seligman the man took the paper with all its stamps examined it then looked the young workman up and down hired as peddler are you he asked you seem very young age has nothing to do with it was the answer i shall soon be six-and-twenty and i've been puddling for the last seven months if you like i can show you certificates on the strength of which i was engaged at new york by the head overseer The young man spoke german quite easily but with a slight accent which seemed to arouse the suspicions of the foreman are you an alsatian he demanded no i am swiss from schaffhausen look here are all my papers quite correct he added taking out a leather pocketbook and showing a passport testimonial and certificates very good after all you are hired and it's my business simply to show you your place returned seligman assured by this display of official documents he then inscribed in a register the name of johann schwartz copying it from the order and gave to the workman a blue card bearing his name and the number fifty seven thousand nine hundred thirty eight adding you must be at the K gate every morning at seven o'clock. Show this card, which will already have passed you through the outer wall. Take from the rack in the lodge a counter with your number on it and show it to me when you come in. At seven in the evening, as you go out, drop the counter into a box placed at the door of the workshop and only open at that time. I know the system. Can I live in the town? asked Schwartz. No you must find a lodging outside, but you can get your meals at the canteen in the shed at a very moderate price. Your wages are a dollar a day to begin with, but they will be raised quarterly. Expulsion is the only punishment. It is pronounced by me at first and by the engineer on appeal for any infraction of the rules. Will you begin today? Why not? It will be but half a day, observed the foreman, as he guided Schwartz to an inner gallery. The two men walked along a wide passage, crossed a yard, and entered a vast hall, like the platform of an immense terminus. Schwartz, as he glanced round, could not restrain a movement of professional admiration. On each side of the long hall were two rows of enormous columns, as big as those in St. Peter's at Rome, their tops rising through the glass roof. These were the chimneys of the puddling furnaces, and there were fifty of them in a row. At one end engines were continually bringing up wagon-loads of iron to feed the furnaces. At the other, empty trucks appeared, to receive and carry away the metal, transformed into steel. This metamorphosis is accomplished by means of the operation of puddling, at which gangs of half-naked cyclops armed with long iron rakes, were working with might and main. The pigs of iron are thrown into a furnace brought to an intense heat. As soon as melted, the metal is stirred about for a considerable time. When it acquires a certain consistency, the puddler, by means of his long hook, turns and rolls about the molten mass, and makes it up into four blooms, or balls, which he then hands over to others. The operation is continued in the midst of the hall. Opposite each furnace stands a shingling hammer, moved by steam. Protected by boots and armlets of iron, the head covered by a metallic veil, and wearing a thick leathern apron, the shingler, with his long pinchers, takes up the red-hot ball and places it under the hammer down on it comes the weight of the ponderous machine pressing out a quantity of dross amidst showers of sparks when it cools it is taken back to the furnace to be brought out again and hammered as before there was incessant movement in this monster forge to a spectator it was a terrifying scene the cascades of molten metal dull blows heard above the roaring showers of brilliant sparks the glare of the red-hot furnaces. In the fearful din and tumult, man appeared like a helpless infant. Powerful fellows must these peddlers be. To stir and knead four hundred weight of metallic paste in that temperature, to see nothing for hours but the blinding glare of the furnace and molten iron, is trying work, and wears a man out in ten years." schwartz as if to show the foreman what he could do at once stripped off his coat and woolen shirt exhibiting a well-knit frame and arms on which the muscles stood out like cords seized a hook which one of the puddlers had just put down and set to work seeing that he was likely to do well the foreman soon left and returned to his office the newcomer worked on until the dinner hour but he was either too energetic, or he had neglected to take sufficient food that morning to support his strength in this unusual toil, for he soon appeared tired and faint. Indeed, so worn out did he seem that the chief of his gang noticed it. "'You're not fit for a peddler, my lad,' he said, "'and you had best ask at once to be changed into another section, for they won't do it later.' "'Schwartz protested against this. It was but a passing faintness. He could puddle as well as anyone.' The gangsman made his report, however, and Schwartz was immediately called up before the chief engineer. This personage examined his papers, shook his head, and asked in an inquisitorial tone, "'Were you a puddler at Brooklyn?' The young man looked down in confusion." I must confess it, I see, he answered. I was employed in casting, and it was in the hope of increasing my salary that I wished to try my hand at puddling. You are all alike, returned the engineer, shrugging his shoulders. At five and twenty, you think you can do what few men of five and thirty are fit for. Well, then, are you good at casting? I was two months in the first class. "'You'd better have stayed in it. "'Here you will have to begin in the third. "'All the same, you may think yourself lucky "'in being allowed to change your section so easily.' "'The engineer then wrote a few words on a pass, "'sent a telegram, and said, "'Give up your counter, leave this division, "'and go straight to Section O, Chief Engineer's Office. "'He's been told.' "'The same formalities were gone through again "'that Schwartz had met with at the K-gate.' as in the morning he was questioned accepted and sent to the foreman of the workshop who introduced him into the casting hall but here the work was more silent and more methodical this is only a small gallery for casting forty-two pounders observed the foreman first-class workmen alone are allowed to cast the big guns the small gallery was not less than four hundred and fifty feet long and two hundred wide. Schwartz, as he glanced round, calculated that there must be at least six hundred crucibles being heated by four, eight, or twelve together in the side furnaces. The moulds destined for the reception of the fused steel were placed down the middle of the gallery at the bottom of a trench. On each side of the trench was a movable crane, which, running on a line of rails, was constantly in use for moving enormous weights. As in the puddling hall, at one end was a railroad for the conveyance of the bars of steel, at the other one for taking away the cannon as they came out of the mold. Near each mold stood a man armed with an iron rod to test the state of fusion of the metal in the crucibles the processes which schwartz had seen put in practice elsewhere were here brought to a remarkable state of perfection when a cast was to be made a warning bell gave the signal to all the watchers of the crucibles then two by two workmen of equal height bearing between them on their shoulders a horizontal bar of iron came with measured step and placed themselves before every furnace an officer, armed with a whistle, his chronometer in his hand, stood near the mold, conveniently placed for all the furnaces in action. On each side, channels of refractory earth, covered with metal, converged in gentle slopes to a funnel-shaped reservoir, placed just above the mold. The officer whistled. Immediately, a crucible, taken from the fire with pinchers, was slung on the iron bar supported by the two workmen the whistle commenced a series of modulations and the two men keeping time to it approached and emptied the contents of their crucible into the corresponding channel then they tossed their empty still red-hot receptacle into a vat without interruption at regular intervals so as to keep up a constant flow Gangs from the other furnaces went through exactly the same operation. It was all executed with such wonderful precision that just at the appointed time the last crucible was emptied and flung into the vat. The maneuver seemed rather the result of a blind mechanism than the cooperation of a hundred human wills. Inflexible discipline, the force of habit, and the power of the measured musical strain worked the miracle. The sight appeared familiar to Schwartz, who was soon coupled with a man of his own height, tested in a small cast, and found a capital workman. Indeed, the head of his gang at the close of the day promised him a speedy rise. On leaving the Section O at seven that evening, he went back to the inn to fetch his portmanteau then following one of the exterior roads he soon came to a group of houses which he had remarked that morning as he passed and easily found a lodging in the cottage of a good woman who took in a lodger after supper the young workman did not like too many of his class stroll out to the nearest public-house he shut himself in his room took from his pocket a fragment of steel evidently picked up in the puddling shed a little crucible earth from the O section, and examined them carefully by the light of a smoky lamp. Then, taking from his portmanteau a thick manuscript book, half full of notes, receipts, and calculations, he wrote the following in good French, though for precaution in a cipher of which he alone knew the key. November 10th, Stolstadt There is nothing particular in the mode of puddling, unless, of course, it is the choice of two different temperatures, relatively low for the first heat and the reheating, according to Chernoff's rules. As to the casting, it is done after Krupp's process, but with a perfectly admirable uniformity of movement. This precision in maneuvers is the great German power. It results from the innate musical talent in the German race, the english could never attain to this perfection they have no ear and want discipline the french may reach it easily as they are the most perfect dancers in the world so far there appears to be nothing mysterious in the remarkable success of this manufacture the mineral specimens which i picked up on the mountain are similar to our best iron the coal is certainly uncommonly fine of an eminently metallurgic quality but still there is nothing unusual in it there is no doubt that in the schwartz manufacture special care is taken to purify the principal materials from any foreign matter that they may be employed only in a perfectly pure state the result may easily be imagined to be in possession of the remainder of the problem i have only to determine the composition of the refractory earth of which the crucibles and the channels are made this discovered and our gangs of workmen properly drilled i do not see why we should not do what they do here all the same as yet i have only seen two sections and there are at least four and twenty without counting the central building the plans and models department the secret cabinet what dangerous schemes may not be maturing in that den What may not our friends have to fear after the threat uttered by Herr Schultz when he took possession of his fortune? After these questions, Schwartz, who was tired enough with his day's work, undressed, laid himself down in a little bed, which was about as uncomfortable as a German bed could be, and that is saying a good deal, lighted his pipe and began to smoke and read a well-worn book but his thoughts were apparently elsewhere, the odorous clouds issued from his lips as if they were saying, pooh, 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 pooh. He soon put down his book and remained lost in thought for a long time, as if he were absorbed in the solution of a difficult problem. Ah, he exclaimed at last though the devil himself should try to prevent me i will find out the secret of professor schultz and above all what he is meditating against frankville schwartz went to sleep murmuring the name of dr saracen but in his dreams it was the name of Jeanette, sweet little Jeanette, that was on his lips he had never forgotten the little girl although jeanette since he last saw her had grown into a young lady this phenomenon is easily explained by the ordinary laws of the association of ideas thoughts of the doctor brought up that of his daughter association by contiguity then when schwartz or rather max brookman awoke having still jeanette in his mind he was not at all astonished But found in this fact a fresh proof of the excellence of the psychological principles of John Stuart Mill. End of section five.